Okay, so we are taking a break from our series, kind of, but not really. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, and by the way, all, all, I learned in the first service, I'm getting worse, not better. Almost all the passages that I've written out are wrong. So, like, I don't know how this keeps happening, okay? I do really care about God's Word, and it is important to me. It's just, like, when it comes time to actually write things out and put them in the bulletin and stuff and on the insert, then that's where I blow it. So, um, but I'll get to that. Um, so, this last week, I was uh, visiting a growth group, as I have done from time to time. Just know I could pop in at any moment. And uh, we were talking through the questions from uh, last week's sermon, Ask and Seek and Knock. And we were talking last week about petitioning God for things and really coming before God and Jesus saying to us, be persistent with God about your needs and your desires and ask him for things. And don't be afraid to ask him for things and do it so much that it almost feels like you're doing it too much and then keep going and do it more, right? Um, and as we were talking about that as a group, one of the first, the first question that we had on the growth group notes was, if you could have a face-to-face conversation with God about anything, what would it be? And almost every person in the group I was in said the same thing. They said their conversation with God, if they could have any conversation with God, would start with the question, why? Why did you let this happen? Why have you chosen for things to be that way? Why doesn't this person know you, even though I've prayed for them? Why didn't you save this person, or why aren't you saving this person right now physically who's dying? Uh, why didn't you save someone? Why, why has my life taken such a dramatic turn in a direction that I was very clear with you I didn't want it to take? And I have a very difficult time seeing how it does anyone any good that that's the direction my life is in right now. And as we went around talking about this, it began to realize that it's only really half of the story to talk about asking and seeking and knocking when we talk about coming to our Father in prayer. We have to talk about the other half, which is why, right? Uh, it's Children's Day, and kids are going to come in here after church and, or after this message, and, um, and, um, and we're going to celebrate them. And one of the reasons why we do that, one of the reasons why Jesus talks a lot about how great kids are and that he wants kids to be able to come to him and not be kind of sent away from him. He says, I'm not just for the grown-ups, I'm for the kids too. The reason is that Jesus again and again and again talks about how great children are is because children are dependent. Um, it's not because children are saints, because it turns out that they're not. It's because they're dependent. It's because they recognize the need that they have. And we have the same need, we just don't often recognize it. And so uh, what we see in children, in their dependence, and in their recognition of the fact that they just don't know how the world fully works yet, is we hear that question. This is kind of the question that children made famous, right? The question of why. If, I don't know, there was a TV show with kids, they'd have a catchphrase, the catchphrase would be why. That would be it, it would just be why. It would come at the least, uh, it would come at the least convenient time, and it would make you realize how uh, either you, how much you don't know about some of the simplest, most basic things in the world, or how bad you are at explaining the things you do know, right? When they just say, why, about everything. Uh, Why is an important question, and as we grow up, we stop asking it, and we stop asking it to God oftentimes. Now, sometimes that's because we think we're not supposed to ask God why. Sometimes that's because we don't want to ask Him why anymore, because we don't think that God's going to going to give us anything from, from asking that, and it's often because we've just grown calloused. We've said, you know what? It's never going to make sense, and I'm hurt, or I'm upset, 
And so why say even why? Why even think I would want to talk to God about something when frankly, like, there's nothing he could say that would make me feel any different or any better about what it is that's happened? For whatever reason, we often have a hard time asking why, but it's a huge question in our minds. And the question is this, that I want to look at this week. What do we do when we don't get the answer that we want? What do we do when we ask and we seek and we knock? And the thing that we have asked for and the thing that we are seeking for and the thing that we are knocking for doesn't happen. How do we reconcile that with everything else Jesus tells us about how good God is supposed to be and how, and how much he cares about us and that he can do whatever he wants and, and he's a loving father? How in the world do we make sense of those two things, and what do we see about that? What I want to look at for that, it's why we're, we're, we're kind of taking a break from the Sermon on the Mount, even though we're still in the Gospels and in Jesus' teaching, is, or really in the life of Jesus, is, uh, is a prayer that Jesus makes, um, um, that, that he makes kind of towards the end of his life and his ministry here. Um, now, now, the reason I say that I got the passages all wrong is because uh, I, it says in the front of your bulletin that we're going to be in Matthew 26, but that's not true. And it says in, uh, on the back of your sermon notes where we're actually going to be, which is Luke 22. And the reason for that is because as I was going through this passage through the week, I was looking at the different gospel accounts of it. And as I got further and closer and closer to Sunday, I just came to realize that the account that we read about in Luke spells out a little bit more what Jesus actually does when he's praying and how God responds to him. And so I want to look at that for our time this morning. Um, so um, Luke... I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Luke 22, 39 through 44. Luke 22, 39 through 44 says this. And he came out and went, as it was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is uh, an account of Jesus in the garden praying. Many of us have heard this, have read this, are familiar with this. There's a reason why Jesus is so upset as he's praying. There's a reason why he asks for the things that he asks for. The first thing that Jesus prays is this. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. His prayer is simple. God, my will is that you would take this from me. And if there's some other way for you to accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish without me having to go through what I'm about to have to go through, please let that happen. There's a reason Jesus says that, okay? He's about to be betrayed by one of the people that he has spent his life investing in, his ministry investing in, and he hasn't spent it investing in a lot of people in the way he has with his disciples. He's about to be completely betrayed by one of them. He is about to be arrested, and all of his disciples will scatter. After that, he will be held for trial um, and wrongly accused of things by the very group of people that he was meant to come and to fulfill the prophecy on behalf of. 
Uh, he, he was there in fulfillment of the prophecy that the Jews knew about. And not only that, but they would ultimately accuse him and try him and, and sentence him to death for being a heretic, for being somebody who was misusing God's word, misteaching God's word, when in fact what we've seen from the Sermon on the Mount is the exact opposite. Jesus is the one coming back and saying, no, 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 you guys aren't even looking at what was originally written. You guys are just doing your own thing because you're trying to construct this whole way of living that is not what God intended for you. And then even when the Roman authorities get involved and they try to give him an out, the people vote still to kill Jesus and release a prisoner instead. He's then forced to carry a cross up a hill and then he's crucified upon it next to criminals. And none of that's even the worst part. The worst part is what comes at the very end when Jesus cries out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? The reason that Jesus is saying to God, let this cup pass from me if it's your will, is because the single most important thing to Jesus in the world is his connection to his father. Okay, Jesus took life from God. Okay, he took, drew life from God. When he went to pray, we said this last week, the reason we want to pray like Jesus is when he went to pray, he came back full of life because that was the most important thing to him. And so he could lose the disciples and he could lose the favor of people that he probably never really even had to begin with, really. And he could lose the favor of the Roman authorities and he could do hard, painful things and he could endure physical torment and punishment and he could even endure physical death. But to be separated from his father is to lose the thing that we ourselves have been told we won't lose now, even. Which is this idea that we essentially, in following Christ, like, is there a moment when God's going to say, I'm forsaken you now? No, because of what Jesus has done. We won't have to endure that thing. But Jesus knew that that moment would come when he would look up to God and God would not be looking back down upon him as his son who he loves and with whom he's well pleased. But instead, Jesus would be carrying the weight and bearing the weight of the sin of everybody. And he would have to pay for that by being disconnected from his father. It's the worst thing that Jesus could possibly endure. It's, it's, like the, it's, like the, it's like the one way that you could cause him real, significant, lasting pain and torment. And that's what he had to undergo, and he knew it was coming. And so his prayer to God is one that we know all too well, which is, God, if it is your will, take this cup from me, let it pass from me. We have all said that prayer. Even if you're not a Christian, you have at some point said, God, please don't let this happen or please make this happen. You have said that prayer. We have all said it. We all know what it's like to desperately want and need something and to be absolutely convinced that it is the right thing, that it is what we need, that it is what is good. In some ways, that's what unites us together more than anything is knowing what that feels like to really be in that kind of a need and to appeal to our Father. And so Jesus asks exactly what we would ask, and he asks it the way that he told us in the last passage that we looked at. He says, go to him with persistence and ask him for it, wholeheartedly, genuinely, with earnestness. He then goes on, though, and he says the thing that's the hardest thing in the world for us to say. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Jesus has just taken the easiest thing in the world for us to say and the hardest thing in the world for us to say and put them right next to each other. We, it is, it is, there is nothing easier than to say, God, give me this thing that I want. And there is nothing, nothing harder to say than, God, your will be done. And so Jesus does it, which is beautiful 
And it's incredible. And it is exactly the tension, the kind of tension that we encounter constantly if we choose to follow Jesus. That you can actually, on one sentence, say, here's what I want. I'm going to be totally honest with you. And then on the other hand, you know, you know that the right thing to say is to say, but I want your will to be done. And then you get to live your life every day going like, how do I make that work, right? How do I actually get up tomorrow and go to bed at the end of the day? I get up and I look out and I see I, sun. I will say sun today because there's sun right there. I, I can see it now. You, you look out and you see sun that morning at least, right? And, and, you, go, and you go, I see sun and, and I say, you know, today I want to go to bed at the end of the day and I want to go, it was easier for me by the end of today to say your will be done, God, right? Like, like if nothing else is accomplished in our life. Than, than that we can more easily and quickly say, I want God's will, not my own for my life. That was a good day, right? We could, we could live every day of our life saying that and asking that, right? Living for that, and it would be a life well lived, right? But it's hard. Jesus says, nevertheless, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is not an easy thing for us to pray. But in praying this, Jesus is inviting God in and he is saying, God, I ultimately do want what you want more than the thing that I want. I want it because I trust you, because I love you, because you know what is best, and because you, God, are more important even than me. We then read this, that God sends him an angel, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So God, from heaven, from God, sends him an angel, which is pretty cool, and the angel does something very important. And there's something very important that the angel doesn't do. What the angel is there to do is to strengthen him. What it doesn't say that the angel's there to do is to comfort him, which I think is really, really important. So Jesus has poured his heart out to God, and then he said, your will be done, and God has sent him help. And that help is meant not to simply put a warm blanket over him and help him cope with what is now going to happen. But instead, he is strengthened by that angel. That God sends Jesus an angel and the purpose is to make him stronger for what comes next. And what we will see is that what comes next isn't the whole crucifixion thing. What comes next is we read about it after this. It says that there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus, it says then, was in agony. Now, if you translate this word agony in the Greek, what it means is a contest. I'm sure that's what we all thought it meant, right? It means a contest. It means a struggle a contest or a struggle. It's like wrestling is what he's talking about. It's a severe struggle with pain and with suffering. So it says that Jesus then prayed and it was a battle. It was a fight. But that fight wasn't against, again, it wasn't against the enemy. That fight was against pain and suffering. It was against fear. It was against anxiety. And so you see that God sends him an angel to give him strength, right? All we want is a big blanket, and instead it's like a big dumbbell, because uh, you need to get stronger for what comes next. And what comes next is the battle, 
the struggle. And what is the battle and the struggle? It is with himself. It is with the pain and the, and the temptation. It is with the pain and the fear and the difficulty of what is going on. Because Jesus is human. He's human and he is God. Has anyone here ever felt that way? That you are afraid and that you are in pain and that there is anxiety and that as a result of that thing that you are in a very battle with it. Such to a degree that it is physically manifesting itself in your body. This is one of the crazy things about the way our bodies work, is that we can feel things so strongly that they physically manifest themselves. That we actually begin to be symptomatic physically of things because of our emotions, especially because of fear, especially because of pain. Our bodies respond even to chronic pain by altering itself to then live with and have to cope with that pain. And so what we read about here is that Jesus is, has asked God for what he wants. He said, your will be done. God has sent him an angel to give him strength because he would then, in agony, he would then battle with the very pain and the very torment and the struggle of having to deal with knowing what is to come. And what I think matters so much for us is what happens after this, which reflects many of our own experiences, which is this. God doesn't take the cup from him. God doesn't remove it from him. But instead, Jesus must carry it. Instead, when he prayed, your will be done, God, that meant that it was going to happen a certain way. And it wasn't going to be the way that Jesus had asked God for it to happen. That he's going to have to walk through it. Now, we look at that and we say, well, sure, but Jesus' suffering accomplished something. In fact, it would accomplish something huge. In fact, it accomplished more than any act will ever accomplish in the history of, of, of everything. Sure, Jesus had to suffer and he had to go through a lot and God didn't take the cup from him, but we know that like it did a lot. And chances are we don't feel that way, right? There's not a point where we go, oh, okay, clearly I had to suffer. I didn't get this thing I wanted. I'm left with this question of why. But, you know, it's clear that God's doing big, important things through that. In fact, some of the most painful times are where we go, there is absolutely no way in which I can understand a world, a reality in which this that I am now going through, this that is now happening, is supposed to lead to anything that is good or that accomplishes anything. What do we do, though, when we don't ultimately get the thing that we ask for, but we are told that God is good, that he's our father and he loves us? We know that God wants to do something in us, that he wants to do something through us, that he wants to do something in those around us, that he even wants to do something in the world through us. We know because God has told us this, and Jesus has told us this, that he wants to actually accomplish something through us and in us as we walk down that path. But there are four important words that make all the difference. If we let him. If we let him accomplish it. Now, can't God do anything he wants? Yes, he can do anything he wants, of course. But the fact of the matter is that when God is seeking to actually accomplish something through us having to now walk through this road of, here's what I want, I don't get it, God's will is done, and it hurts, and I'm upset. There's a reason 
And lots of times that reason is because God actually wants to accomplish something in you and through you, and even in the world through you, and even in the lives of others through you and this thing that is happening that is so difficult. But we have to let him. Because if we don't, and many of us know what this feels like, we hunker down and we close off and we say, I am just going to get through this. And that's it. We simply try to cope and that's it. And we don't acknowledge the fact that God could actually be doing something through it. Our assumption is that our suffering and our pain doesn't mean anything or that it can't accomplish anything. And here is what it does for us. Here is why it is so powerful, especially in the life of somebody who follows Jesus. Because when we don't get what we want, but we still keep walking, it gives us something that we desperately need. It gives us perspective. It gives us perspective, and we desperately need perspective. We live our lives on a very small scale. We start out knowing very little about the world around us. And hopefully, as we get older, we learn more about the world around us. You maybe heard this analogy or this metaphor of like a mouse that lives in a church. I don't know why it always lives in a church. It doesn't have to for the purpose of the analogy. But let's say a house lives in your kid's bedroom, okay, or your bedroom, okay? How about that? So there's a mouse living in your room, and that mouse only knows the room. That's all it's ever known. That's the world around it. That's everything that this mouse has ever known. And then it wanders out into the living room and its world just got a whole lot bigger and everything just changed for it. Imagine what would happen if that mouse ever found its way outside. How much its mind would be blown, right? By simply seeing how much bigger things are. Why? Because that gives that mouse perspective. Perspective about what's really going on about the scope and scale and size and meaning of things. And I'm not just talking about physical perspective, like, oh, we're this tiny little speck in a universe. I'm talking about spiritual perspective, like that the more that we come to recognize is true about the world around us and about what God tells us about the way he is and the way that we are, the more we realize the way that he really is, the way that we really are, and what's actually really going on. Now, we have this tendency to often not want the big world. We often want to go back to the small room. And so we will only see what we're forced to see. We will often only grow just as much as we're forced to. And then we go back, we stop and we go back to trying to live life the way it was before. It's a very rare person who chooses to see the world as any bigger than they've been forced to see the world. It's a rare person who chooses to accept what they have seen without being forced to accept what they've seen. So we have to be shown it, and then we have to be forced to accept it. That is the way that perspective tends to work. Because for many of us, we want to live in a world that is very different than the one in which we live. And when we endure pain and trial in life, we're often forced to see the world as being bigger than we thought it was. And if you talk to someone who has never endured hardship, who has never endured pain, who has never endured suffering or trial, then you're talking with someone whose world is probably pretty small because they've not been forced to confront the harsh realities of the way things really are. I've known people like this, people who are like, I know it sounds crazy, I know it sounds weird, but my life has been very easy and the hard stuff hasn't really happened to me. And, and they recognize, well, they don't totally recognize it, but I certainly have recognized it as I've talked to them more, that they're only seeing a world that's this big because they've kind of only been forced to. So our perspective is important. 
Do you want to see what's really there? Or would you rather just see what you've known before? The other thing that happens, other than gaining perspective, is that God teaches us through suffering. Now, something I learned this week when I was reading about this a lot, and as I was looking at some other pastors and, and theologians, what they've said over thousands of years, like this is, this is the issue that people have wrestled with for so many years, is how can God be good, and how can he be loving, and how can he be all the things Jesus said he was last week, and still allow the things that he allows to have happen. And as people have wrestled with this, a lot of pastors and authors have been hesitant to say what they think, and it's been surprising to me to read that. And it's because of how sensitive this issue is for so many of us. They simply don't want to hurt people who are in pain. To even suggest to someone who is in pain that God would use that pain for good to even suggest to someone going through trial that God might be trying to accomplish something through that can embitter us, can make us defensive, can hurt us even more deeply. I feel it. I feel it as I all week was, was in a sense wanting to talk about this, but also dreading talking about it because I think that the things that God's word tells us about what's really going on as our perspective gets, gets shaped more accurately are also things that we could go, how dare you? How dare you say that to my pain and what I'm going through and what I'm dealing with? How dare you tell me maybe what it means? Now, to be fair, people for thousands of years have also done a very bad job of answering this question. And so they've also said a lot of foolish, wrong, weird things about pain and about God and about the way things work. And we have to deal with that too. And we all know what that's like probably. It's kind of like Job's friend sitting next to him giving him answers that you're like, I don't think that's the right answer. I don't think that they're right on. They should probably just stop talking, which is why a pretty good rule of thumb, by the way, is saying, I'm, there, I'm here for you. This must be really hard for you. How can I help you? Just start there with people, okay? Just, we'll, we'll all agree to start there when people are in pain. Um, because that's the thing that we all need, right? And, uh, and let's be honest, there's, there's very, very few who are capable of saying too much beyond that because it's really hard to say too much beyond that. I usually end with that, and I usually end with like that. I just repeat it. That's how I end with it. <laughs> now, the problem with this idea that God teaches us through suffering is that it makes it, it almost kind of implies like, so what does that mean? Does that mean that suffering is worth learning things? Because guess what? Newsflash, okay? Whatever this thing is that I'm going through, whatever this thing is that God did not give me, I don't care how many lessons that you want to tell me life has to offer, how many lessons that God could teach me about things. It, I could not care less about a lesson if it's going to cost me this, Right? If I'm going to lose someone, if I'm going to lose my life, if I'm going to lose my family, if I'm watching a marriage or a family or something in my life fall apart or something happen, and you're telling me that I could learn something through it, I'm going to tell you right back, I don't care. It's not as important to me as that thing. You can give me all the lessons in life, and they're not going to be as important as that. But we're not talking about lessons. We're not talking about tips. We're not talking about helpful hints for how to get through the next 30, 40, or 50 years. We're talking about truth versus lies. We're talking about we are living in blindness, most of us. And the perspective, what it does is it shows us what's really there. And so as we go through difficult things, they force us to see what is really happening. And a lot of us don't want to see it, right? A lot of us don't even want to live in that world. But the fact is, 
as I have looked back in my own life and I have seen the things that God, that I can see that God has shown me through difficulty and pain. I have seen truth that God has shown me. I have, I've been like, I didn't actually know that this thing was real and now I do. I didn't know that that was true and now I do. And there is no way that I would have ever learned it unless God had forced me to learn it. And frankly, he did that by not giving me the thing that I was specifically asking for. And doing that in his goodness. The best example of this, I think, this learning lessons thing or whatever, or even just the worth of going through struggles and trials and difficulty is Job. Okay, Job is the book about suffering. Okay, we have to talk about Job. Job is, Job is an entire book dedicated to the question of what happens when good things happen, when bad things happen to good people. Now, why does Job seem so unfair? Because I personally have felt for a long time like Job seems kind of unfair. And here's why. is because if I'm Job and somebody goes, um, so here's the deal. This whole thing where you lost everyone and everything and there were sores on your body and it turned out even your friends that you got stuck with, how, how lame is that, right? You're left with like a bunch of friends who are not even really that great at helping you through this thing, right? And a wife who's saying, just curse yourself and die, right? That's great, okay? So if I'm Job and someone says, hey, guess what? You're not supposed to know this, but there was this deal. There's this wager going on between God and Satan, and you just proved God right, okay? If I was Job, I'd be like, are you kidding me right now? Like, that is seriously why this just happened to me. So that God could be proved right to who? To who? who? What? To Satan? Are you kidding me? Like, how is that supposed to make me feel any better, right? The reason it doesn't make sense is because that's only part of the story. Because the other part of the story is this. Satan said to God at the beginning of this whole thing that Job didn't actually love and serve him. That Job actually loved and served himself and was complying with God's will because God was protecting him. So Satan says, oh, this guy's so great. This guy's so holy. This guy's so righteous. Sure, because you've put a hedge of protection around him, is what he says. So if you take that hedge of protection away, then what's, then what's left? Then what's going to be there? And what we see throughout the book of Job is we see a man who does love God because of the things that God has given him in the beginning. And then what we see is a man at the end who loves God for God. And what we see in Job is not just a wager between God and Satan, but what we see is we see God accomplishing something through a person, in a person's life, through a tremendous amount of pain and suffering and trial. That whole idea of a, of a hedge of protection. I mean, how often is that something that we pray for, that we ask for, that we say, God, would you protect, give, give the very thing that we see a shallow faith would be built on. Now, a hedge of protection is not a bad thing, but if that's the thing we want and expect from God, if that's how we see God as our provider and as our father and our caretaker, then we have a very limited view of God. We have a very small view of God in the way that he works. And as soon as we're not protected, we're going to doubt him and we're not going to believe him anymore. The Shorter Westminster Catechism, because that sounds fun, is, uh, it says this. It says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Okay? 
These guys got around, spent a really long time coming up with the best way to accurately sum up what the Bible says is the chief end of man. The reason we're here, why we live every day, why you wake up in the morning and why, why you live out that day. And it is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, okay? Starting now. So let's think about that for a second. Let's think about our week, all right? Let's think about last week, okay? How much glorifying of God and enjoying him did you do in the last week, right? How many opportunities did you have for that? How, how much was that on your mind? I know you probably popped out of bed and were like, all right, here we go, another day of, of glorifying God, enjoying him. Uh, let's see how I have opportunities to do that. No, because amidst the busyness of our lives, we don't have a lot of room for that. In fact, I, I would argue um, not even the busyness, the enjoyment of our lives. Amidst the enjoyment of our lives, we don't really have a lot of space left over for glorifying God and enjoying him forever. The fact is, for the majority of us, the honest truth is that our priorities are pretty far off much of the time. That we're not really focused on the aim of our life. We're not really focused on the reason that we exist. We're not really focused in living each day on the purpose that we have. But what we want is we want God to protect that week that we just had, right? We wanted to protect the life that we have right now. We say, put a hedge around it, keep it the way it is, and I will honestly continue to pray for my will, which often is just more of that. Which can often hurt us much more than it can help us. Our lives don't seem very oriented to glorifying God and finding your enjoyment in Him much of the time. So, when I say that we get perspective when we don't get an answer that we want, when I say that there is perspective that comes from the why, here's what I mean. The first is this. These are some things that we actually come to recognize are true, and we probably already knew, but we wouldn't actually live out unless we were really forced to. The first one is this. The kingdom of God is eternal. It is eternal which means forever, which also means bigger than just this life. Now, you may be like, we know that, that's an easy one, but do we really know that? How often do we ever think about eternity? How often do we ever think about eternal, about forever? And how often are we thinking about right now? Now, what Scripture tells us is that our life is like this kind of blip on a radar screen. But here's the other crazy thing that Scripture tells us. It tells us that that little blip is actually really significant. That like, that there are things that God wants to do in that little blip and that there are things that we do and there are decisions that we make and there are ways that we live that that glorify Him and, and, and all that stuff. And so that little blip is an important little blip, but it's a blip on a radar of eternity. That this is what's true. Although it's not often something that we live in light of. So we have to acknowledge the fact that um, (coughs) we view this life, this life which is all that we've ever known. I mean, it's all any of us have ever known is this life. And I'm supposed to care about, you know, eternity anything that goes beyond my physical death here, 
but all I've ever known is this. I'm pretty fully invested in this, right? How do we accept and live in light of eternity? Knowing that eternal life begins the moment you choose to follow Jesus. You are beginning eternal life at that point. How do we actually live in light of that? I'll tell you how. Our perspective has to change. It has to shift. And there are often times that we need to go through hard things. Not that force us to give up and let go and say, I don't care about this life. But to say, well, hang on a second. How about eternity? The other thing that we see and our perspective being changed, is that Jesus, this is kind of similar to the first one, but I think it's different, is that Jesus himself has conquered death. Jesus says he's conquered death. He says he's taken away its sting. The thing that like, (coughs) that our world is plagued with an absolute terror of, the thing that stalks and follows and chases after every person, you know, um, and that everyone is like worried about and freaked out about and afraid of, this thing, death, that would ultimately take us all one day, Jesus comes on the scene and says, hey, good, good news. Oh, yeah, I've conquered and defeated it. So now what are you worried about? You go, if someone said, has Jesus conquered death? You could be like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what it says in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yes, he has, right? Do you live that way? Do you feel that way? Do you feel the freedom and the weight and the hope that comes from knowing that death really has lost its sting? That it is really scary to a lot of people, but not to us. Or do we not live in light of that? Do we somehow still live in the same amount of fear of it? And the same investment only in this physical life right now? Because Jesus has said it's different. That, that, that death won't conquer you and defeat you. That I have defeated it. And then he goes on to do it. And what this means is not that we be reckless and careless, and that we devalue our life, but it means that we can live bravely, that we can live with courage, that we don't even depend on the circumstances of our life being a certain way, like others would, who say this is all that we have, and afterwards there's nothing because we're defeated by it going away. The other perspective that we see get shifted here is one of grace. You see, the truth is that our God is a gracious God. Everything good that he's ever given for us or done for us is out of his grace. It's not because we deserve it. So again, you might say, well, yeah, okay, I get that. I agree with that. I believe that. Do we live in light of the fact that everything that we have is from a gracious God? That even when we're tempted to say, (coughs) God, why save me and why not them? Why so many who are lost? Why so many that I've even maybe prayed for, that I love and I care for? Why so many who will never, who will not be with you because they're not choosing you? That rather we turn that around and we say, God, why even one? Why even one person? I know I don't deserve you and for death to be conquered. I don't deserve eternal life. And again, I'm not saying that because we're supposed to feel guilty. I'm saying that because we're supposed to go, our God is so gracious that we are blown away by the fact that he would save even one. And we must be reminded of how God's grace works and what it means for us and that his grace is what powers us. 
Do we think that way or do we think, no, I'm saved because I'm pretty good and I've done a lot of the right things and I've been really careful and I believe a lot of the right things and I come here every week and I read the Bible sometimes and I try to pray oftentimes. And honestly, I've made a lot of sacrifices and I've done a lot of hard things. And um, there's a lot of other people out there who should be in, with God, who should be experiencing eternal life because they are also like that. Why are they not able to experience it too? Because it isn't about any of those things. Because it is about trusting in Jesus, having faith in him, and it is about what God has done and his graciousness. We forget these things all the time. We get up and we live a day out, not in light of the, the truth of that at all. And it is through our perspective being refined that we go, oh yeah, that's how it is. The last thing is this. It is that nothing, and I mean nothing, is as satisfying or as secure as God. Nothing is as satisfying as God. No person, no relationship, no physical thing, no, no physical shape that you're in, no length of life, nothing is as satisfying and nothing is as secure as God. He is the ultimate good thing for us. And our security being in him is the ultimate good. The big jump that Job had to make was going from being uh, a man with a sort of a, a, there's a, there's a pastor, it's Pastor Tim Keller, he calls it a mercenary love. And a mercenary love is when you love someone for what they give you, right? You say, I love you because you're this way and you do this and you do this and you do this and then there's this. And I love all of those things about you and so I will love you now because you do those things and you give me those things. That is a mercenary love. That is a love because it benefits me. Any relationship has to get beyond that to have there be a real love. And what is a real love? Is it is this. It is I love you for you. I love you for you. Even when all those things went away. And so Job, a man who loves God because of all these things that God has given him, is now a man who loves God for God. A man who loves God because of who God is. Because when he has lost everything, God is there. And what's crazy about Job is that he loses everything and he ultimately says, I just want to die. I want to die. And God doesn't let him. It's like the opposite of what a lot of us would pray. He loses all of those things and what does he say? I don't even want to be alive anymore. Which shows us a lot about where his heart was at before he lost all those things. And so, so when we talk about God being good, when we talk about God actually being satisfying, when we talk about the ability that we have, the incredible ability that we have to say, no matter what happens, God will be good. The fact that we can say that is the single like, most significant thing. And many of us don't find comfort in that. Many of us say, I don't want God. I want this other thing. I want the hurt to go away. I want things to stop. And as our perspective is forced to be refined, we are forced to wrestle with that again and again and again. Is God really the good thing for me? Do I truly trust in God and is my security in him or is it in something else? Now, you can't talk about this without 
I, I, well, I'll say this. I feel like I can't talk about this without talking about children, and I'm not saying it's because everything has to be about children. This isn't like about my children specifically. Um, but it's because as a parent, I've come to recognize that um, I really, really, it is it, the most painful thing for me is to know that my kids are going to endure pain and that my kids are going to endure suffering. That other people in my life who are close to me and who are important to me, that there's little that I can do sometimes to protect them from those things, right? Because I want more than anything, I think, to like give my, give my children a, a good life. I really want that. I want them to be healthy and to be happy and to be safe. I want them to look back on their life and say, it was just such a good, happy life. It was a joyful life. I'm really grateful for it. A lot of other people don't get that. That's like this thing that I really want. I'm really driven by. I love it when my kids go to bed at the end of the day and we just kind of talk about their day and they're happy. They're like, it was a good day. It's like, yeah, that was. I'm, I'm like, I love that. I don't take it for granted. I, I mean, I, I take a lot of things for granted. I, I, there was a point when I went through, a, like, I had really chronic back pain, and I couldn't even stand up without being in pain. And I was like, man, I really took it for granted, just standing, right? It's kind of like when you go on a run, um, if you've ever done that, and then you stop, and you go, wow, standing is really nice, right? Like, I didn't really appreciate it before I started this run. What was I thinking, right? And that is why I guess nobody should ever run because it's just a miserable, horrible experience. <laughs> amen, yeah, right? It's more amen to that. Um, we, we, you think of your health as something that's easy to take for granted, right? You don't think much about it until it's gone, and then you go, oh man, I, I, I really took it for granted. I don't, I don't take um, the investment in my kids for granted very often, for whatever reason. It's always on my mind, and it's always something that I'm thinking about. And I don't do a great job of it all the time, but I definitely want it to always be good for them all the time. And so it's hard for me to, to think, like, that God could ever allow things to happen in my life, that God could ever not give me things that I bring before him in prayer that will hurt my kids, that will hurt people who I see as being defenseless and not able to kind of maybe even fully understand and believe things that I can fully understand and believe more as an adult. And the thing that... I have come to recognize that I think is so important, and it comes back to the idea of a hedge of protection, right? Is that we can either pray and say, God, would you put a hedge of protection around my kids and around my family, and would you protect us? And think that ultimately down the road, they'll look back and they'll say, boy, am I glad I grew up in a family with a hedge of protection around us, right? (laughs) I think that's supposed to tell me something. Or, I really feel like that's supposed to tell me something, but I don't know what it is. No one told me what that means. Probably means I'm going over and it's children's day, huh? Um, I'm talking about kids, so whatever. There's something that I learned, and I learned it as a youth pastor, and it was this, because I spent years, uh, I, I had those super fun years of being in junior high myself, which were just the highlight of my life, and then I had those really fun years of being in high school, because um, I had a lot of pogs, and I was in junior high, so I was popular. So I, 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 was, I was junior high, and then high school, that adventure, and then I went on to working with junior highers right after that, and then working with high schoolers, and so I lived in the world of like adolescence and young sort of adulthood, like for a long time. And what I came to realize was this, time and time and time again, that nothing develops an actual firm faith like a combination of two things, adversity and people to walk alongside you and show you God in that adversity. 
I would see students come through youth group and their parents would be brokenhearted because of the circumstances of their life or of their family or things that have happened and say, I didn't want this for my family. I didn't want this for my kids. And I would say to them, like, it's not what you think. Because if your children's whole life is that God gives you what you ask for for them and then he protects them in all the ways that you ask for for them, then that might often set them up for later on in life realizing that there's more to life than those things and then walking away from God. So the ability to, in the midst of struggle, even when we're very young, to, to see who God is and that he is better than just things going well, right? That that can develop within us a firm faith that is stronger than any other kind of faith. That like Will will talk about in a couple of weeks, Jesus says, is like building your house on the rock and not building your house on the sand. I have more to say, but there's kids outside, so I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for children. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for how good you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are truly better than anything and that you are more secure than anything. Father, our prayer is that we would be able to ask that your will be done. Our prayer is that you would give us the strength for the battle that comes after that, Lord. When we struggle with the doubt and the fear, the anxiety that comes with the oftentimes the situations where we lose things that matter a lot to us, that we don't get the thing that it is that we want. Father, this life will not always make sense to us. The things that you do are beyond us and will not always make sense to us. But Father, I pray that we would see your goodness in it, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The thing that people will see in us that makes us Christian, that they will hopefully like, is not that we're the people who know about all the rules to follow, and it's not that we're the nicest people ever or better than anyone else that they've ever seen anywhere else, and it's not because we're the people who know the answers to the questions all the time of why. It's because we are the people who trust in our Father in those times. It is because we know that God is good. I've not met a lot of people who say, I became a Christian because of all these people I saw following rules and how good of a job they did, and I wanted a part of that. I have met countless people who have said, I follow Jesus because I've seen people who truly have faith in God and who have been through some pretty difficult things and at the same time have trusted him and in his goodness, and they've weathered those things in a way that shows that they believe in more than just what we see here. And so that is the people that we're called to be, and ultimately that means we're called to proclaim a message of hope along with having hope ourselves, amen? All right, God bless you guys. Happy Children's Day. Have a great day.